I heard a story the other day, unrelated to the message, but I thought I'd share it with you. There's an elderly woman that uh, each morning she would go outside, front porch, and she would scream out, glory to God, every morning. One day, uh, she had a new neighbor move in, and uh, this gentleman was an atheist. And um, after a few weeks of hearing this elderly woman come up there shouting, praise God, he got upset. And so he went out there, and after she would say, praise God, he would shout, there is no God. And this barter went back and forth for quite a while. And one morning, this elderly woman got out there and um, had experienced some difficult times. And uh, money was really, really tight. And she just said, God, she goes, I've, there's, there's no money. I have no food, but glory to God. And the atheist came out there and said, there is no God. The next morning, the elderly woman goes outside in her front porch at these two heaping bags of groceries. And she shouts out, glory to God, glory to God. And as soon as she gets done shouting out, the atheist jumps out of the bushes and said, I'm the one who bought those groceries. It wasn't God. And then she turned around and she said, glory to God, because he made the devil pay for these groceries. <laughs> Pretty intense, huh? That had nothing to do with today's sermon, but I just thought it was a good story. So um, I guess the devil can do a lot of things. We have been marching through the Gospel of John for a long time now, almost um, getting close to a year. Um, I, I have, I don't know I, for you, but I have enjoyed this, um, this march. I, I've enjoyed looking at these stories and the context and the flow in which they took place. If you remember, going back several weeks now, John chapter 13 begins what we call the Upper Room Discourse. Um, and John, um, or Jesus, has got the disciples together in the Upper Room. And this is kind of like their, their swan song together. And the disciples you know, come in there with a dinner, and Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. John chapter 13, an amazing story of humility. Um, John chapter 14, if you remember John 14, verse 6, Jesus makes the declaration. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus boldly declares, he's it. There's no other way to God but through him. Um, today we live in a society and a time where um, we don't, from a worldly standpoint, believe in a lot of absolutes. Um, we, we're so overcome with political correctness that we don't want to tell anybody that they're wrong. And so we kind of cover it up. Or, or if we say that someone's wrong, then we are intolerant. And somehow we've, over the course of several years, have changed the definition of what tolerant really means. You know, now it becomes we're intolerant if you don't choose to accept what I believe. I mean, that's not the truth. Um, and so Jesus, we see this really played out specifically in religion. And faith, and and so when when we tell somebody that Jesus is the only way, that so often flies in their face. They don't want to accept that because you're telling them that they're wrong, and it's not about them. It's not about their choice. It's not about what they want. It's all about God and all about Jesus. And um, so often I say in our invitation time that all roads lead to Jesus. Okay, they all do. Like when we draw our last breath, every single one of us will stand before Him. Sinner, saint, believer, unbeliever, we all stand before Him. But the only way we get to go in through the pearly gates, the only way we get to enter heaven is by accepting and believing in him. That's it. There's no other way. So we talk about that in John chapter 14. And then John 15, at the, uh, 
at the end of uh, John uh, 14, Jesus makes that statement, let's get up and go. Let's arise and go. And so they leave the upper room, and they're making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the Gospel of John doesn't talk about the Garden of Gethsemane, but that's where they're, they're walking towards the garden. And it's in that garden where Judas will ultimately arrive uh, with the Roman guards and Jesus will be ar- arrested. But on the way there, they had, the, Jesus begins to continue this lesson, this talk with the disciples. And uh, John chapter 15, you, you have that beautiful discourse about the vine and the branches. And he uses this illustration. More than likely, he's, they're walking and they come across the vineyard. And Jesus kind of uses this as an illustration. You know, drawing the attention of the disciples to this vine. And, and him being the vine. And the disciples, the believers being the branches. Um, and this kind of went against a lot of some of their tradition because they, going back to the Old Testament, the vine was always referred to as Israel. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you guys were the vine. You had the opportunity to be the vine, but you failed. You went against me. Um, and, and so you have this old, and it's a beautiful, the, the idea that a fruit, um, in our own Christian walk, like we, we think like we have to be the ones that are doing all of these things. Like we got to talk more. We have to do more. We have to do all whatever it is that, falls underneath that. And ultimately, when we look at this part of, of God being the vine, we being the branches, the vine or the, the branches or the, the vine is what produces the fruit. It's not the branch. The branch is just the one that kind of carries it along. All the substance, all the nutritional elements that the fruit needs comes from the vine. So that takes a lot of pressure off our shoulders, doesn't it? It's nothing that we do. It's only us being connected to the vine that produces the fruit. Um, and so we have this idea at the beginning of, of John chapter 15 where Jesus talks about the vine and the branches. It's um, a, a, a story of the believer being connected in relationship with God. And then the middle part of John chapter 15 is this idea of the believer being connected to other believers. Um, friendship. Um, finding unity. That we need to love one another. And again, we have to always understand one of the, why I love the idea of this context is we understand like Jesus, like monumental events are about to take place. Like human history changing things are going to occur. And Jesus is saying this. Jesus has been telling the disciples that he was going to leave soon, but it's not registering. And even as, as much as it might be beginning to register, they have no clue. And so Jesus knows what's going to occur. Jesus knows how the disciples will respond. And so he's saying, yes, first and foremost, you need to be connected to the vine. You need to be connected to me. I will give you the substance, the nutrition to get through this. And he said, like, step number two is you need to surround yourself with godly friends. Find people that believe in me, believers who are, are passionately coming after me. We think about it, there's strength in numbers, aren't there? Like, we're always more comfortable when we're in a group of people who we know have our best interests, who, who, who we know love us, right? And so Jesus says, listen, you need to find those group of people. I, I shared with you when we did this lesson about Sarah Elena. This is probably the third week in a row I've said it, but I can't probably say it enough. I remember when she was graduating high school, right before the week before she left for college, and I had her come in and speak to the other youth in the youth group. 
And I asked her and the rest to just kind of give some final thoughts, some words of wisdom, some nuggets for the, the kids that were still in the youth. And hers was very, very simple, but oh so true. And she turned to those youth and she said, listen, guys, make your best friends be your church friends. Make your best friends be your church friends. I mean, she knew the, the struggles of high school. She knew the temptations. She knew the things that she faced and she knew they would do the same thing. I was able to, to witness, there was a group of, of friends, five or six of these kids that were seniors that had, had been in Sunday school classes since like the second grade. And they were, they were like this team. And they would, whenever one was going through something, they would all rally together. Those of us who knew them saw that. They had that common bond. They, they believed in God and God was instrumental in their lives. And so when they hit those tough times, it wasn't these other people they went to. It was this inner circle of good Christian friends, people they went to church with. And they did way more than just church together. And so I would encourage you, adults, that we ought to make our best friends our church friends. It doesn't necessarily be everyone just at this church, but, but make sure as you are going there and you're, you're establishing deep-rooted friendships that those are people that love God. It's so important. So, so as we face these temptations, we have people that we can go to that can help us through these things. So God knew that. So he said, yeah, stay connected to me. Then find a group of friends, people that you love and that love you. And in the last part of John chapter 15, and kind of bleeds over into John chapter 16 is, is after the good stuff of staying close to the vine, of getting good friends, Jesus says, okay, persecution's coming. It's coming. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. If they kill me, they're going to kill you. Now, it was prophetic to a certain degree because of all the disciples, every one of them except for John, if you remember last week, was all martyred, was, was all killed for their faith. I don't think Jesus was necessarily saying, like, every believer, you're going you're gonna to die a horrible death. You're going to be crucified, beheaded, whatever. That's not what he was saying. But, but what Jesus was saying is, the world does not identify with me. They've rejected me. They've, they've rejected what I believe in. They've rejected what I've come here to do. And so if they're going to reject the leader, what will they do with those who follow? Right? They're the same thing. They're going to reject you. They're not going to accept you. If you remember, we talked about in the Gospel of John that at the very beginning in John chapter 1, this, the term world kind of changes. John chapter 1, the world is kind of talking about the cosmos, the, the literal world. We talk about light and darkness and, and some physical components of the world. And then very quickly going into John chapter 2, for several chapters, when he talks about the world, he's talking about general humanity. Right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Right? What is that... A verse that we all memorize probably, right? For God so loved the world. It wasn't the world cosmos. It wasn't the clouds that he died for. The trees and the lakes. It was, it was for humanity. So, so for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. But have everlasting life. See, that term world is for humanity. And then it transitions. And as we get into John chapter 10, remember we talked about the good shepherd? Jesus makes that, that illustration. He's using the idea of a shepherd. He says, the, the sheep know my voice. And so starting in John chapter 10, there's this separation. Now it's those who know Jesus and those who do not know Jesus. 
So starting in John chapter 10, when we use that term world, Jesus is talking about those who have rejected him. Who have rejected God, have rejected Jesus. And very clearly in John chapter 15, Jesus paints this picture of a war that's going on. Those who believe in him and those who don't. And it's kind of like oil and water. They don't mesh. It goes into John chapter 16. And one of the things we always have to remember when it comes to scripture is that these were letters. When John wrote this, this was a letter. When he wrote it, he didn't put a chapter and he didn't put verses in there. Like over time, we instituted those things to make it a little bit easier for us to read and to memorize. So this is John chapter 16, the first four or five verses carries over to what John was talking about in John 15. And again, he's talking about this persecution. Um, In 2 Timothy uh, 3.12, it says that if, if we live godly lives, we'll be persecuted. We live godly lives. I, I, many of you probably know or remember this passage in First Peter. Maybe if you have your Bibles, you can turn over real quickly before we get to John chapter fifteen. But First Peter uh, chapter five. First Peter chapter five, starting in. I'll start in verse six. It says, "Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God." So that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's a verse a lot of us claim in the midst of the fire, right? In the midst of difficult times, if we cast all of our anxieties on him, he'll take care of us, right? But check out what happens right after that verse. Another very familiar verse. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour what a picture of the devil, of Satan. It's painted there. It's like a, he's like a, a lion. A hungry, ferocious lion. I don't, I don't know about you guys. One of my favorite times of the year is Shark Week. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like... You always feel bad for those baby seals and those things. Right? But you see like this massive, like great white shark that just devours something. And there's those, those times when like they just tease them, where they have like those balloons and things out there in the ocean. And you see them just attack it and leap out of the water trying to ravage that. It's kind of the same picture of the devil. Like he doesn't mean good for us. Just like that shark doesn't really want to befriend the seal. Okay, it's not like a Disney cartoon. But that shark's intentions are to kill, devour, and to eat. Like a lion. To kill, to devour, to eat. And it's waiting. It is studying. That's the same way the devil is with us. He's waiting. He's seeking. And he's looking for opportunity. He's looking for the weak link in our lives. Ready to pounce. See, God knows this. Jesus knows this. Jesus is very aware. Jesus 
had to go through the same thing, the 40 days of temptation. Everything we've been tempted, the scripture tells us, every single thing that we've been tempted with, Jesus had to endure in human body, in human form. He knows it. He knows what's about to happen to these disciples. And so he, he gives them this next passage, which I think is so beautiful. John chapter 16. We're going to read uh, verses 5 through 15. It says this, and this is Jesus speaking. It says, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and the righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Verse 12 says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is, is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I pray that you be with us in the next couple of moments. I pray that as we begin to study your Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit begins to work in us. Lord, I pray that he begins to work in our hearts, in our minds, and our souls. I pray that he reveals to us areas in which we need to change. I pray that this morning, if there's someone here that has never accepted you as their Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit begins to call and tenderizes their heart to the point where they'll respond. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this scripture. Lord, I pray that in the next few moments as as I stand before our church, that you give me your words, your thoughts. I pray that you give me your passion, your power. I pray that everything that is said this morning is not done under my authority or under my limited understanding. I pray that we see amazing things happen today and we all realize it had nothing to do with Chad and everything to do with you. It's in your son's beautiful name that we pray. Amen. So when we look at this passage this morning, these 10 verses, we get an understanding of what the works of the Holy Spirit are. Now, I've told you all before, my, I come from a very staunch Baptist background. Okay, I, I was born in a Baptist nursery. Pretty confident about that one. Okay, all through life, that's where I was at. Um, and I, I love it. I, I, we are, people ask us, what are we? I would tell people we're, we're non-denominational, but I'm a pretty ardent Baptist. Okay. <laughs> One of the things that Baptists get nervous talking about, though, is the Holy Spirit. We talk about Jesus. We'll talk about God. But the Holy Spirit, 
I get a little nervous about. This morning, I find it amazingly interesting that as Jesus is having his last huddle with this gang that's been following him, he turns to them and says, guys, I'm going. Um, but it's to your advantage that I go. I don't, does that strike anybody as odd? Like, I, I, a lot of times I like, when I read scripture, I like to try and put myself in that story. Like if I was one of those characters in this journey. You know, what would I have thought? What would I have done? And I, this is one of the times when, when I see the response of the disciples, Chad would have been doing the same exact thing. And Jesus kind of laments in the fact that he says, guys, I'm leaving. And the Bible tells us that, um, that they were so, um, let me find the verse here. Verse five, it says, yeah, I'm going and he sent me and none of you ask where you are going because I've said these things to you. Sorrow has filled your heart. Sorrow. Um, a better word for us than sorrow would be pain. Like, like these guys were, were beyond just confused. They, they'd moved past being a little sad. They were in deep pain. Like, again, understand these disciples had given up everything to follow Jesus. We, it's easy. Sometimes we fall in this trap where we look down on these disciples and say, well, how could these guys do this stuff? I mean, how, how could they be doubting Jesus? They'd seen all this stuff. Okay, we know the end of the story. They don't, right? We remember that, don't we? Like, we know that Jesus dies. We know Easter, we have Good Friday where he's dead in the cross. We have Easter Sunday when he resurrects out of the tomb. We have the lilies. We have great you know, songs. We, we celebrate Easter, right? We know those things because they took place. Hadn't taken place yet in the disciples' lives. No doubt these guys had experienced death. They had seen people die before. So Jesus makes a statement, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go, but I'll be, I'll be back. No, they, they're upset. They're bothered. They're, they're sad because everything they've given up for, everything they've given up, everything they had done, all the stuff they'd endured. Right? Remember the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they turned on Jesus, didn't they? Like wolves. Like they, they went from the celebration to, to being like wolves, like trying to figure out ways to kill him. If you remember going back to John chapter 11, I believe, when um, Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead. Remember that miracle? Fast forward a few chapters later, they're coming up with a plan to kill Jesus. And then they turn around and say, well, listen, killing Jesus isn't good enough. We've got to kill Jesus first and then kill Lazarus. Because Lazarus is still the evidence. Well, the same thing is going to be true about the disciples, won't it? Like once we get rid of the once we get rid of the leader, we gotta get rid of all the people who are following him. Because they're just gonna spring up and they're just gonna start telling everybody and it's gonna turn around, it's gonna it's gonna go against us. So we gotta kill all of them. I mean, so these disciples in their minds are I mean they're painful. I mean, they they love this man, they've given up everything for this man. They've been following this man for three and a half years. And suddenly he says, I'm I'm going, guys.
And they naturally turned inward. Their concern was not about where Jesus was going, but how it would affect them. How often in our own lives does that occur? How often does it happen when we go through those difficult moments and difficult times that we turn inward and just focus in on how this situation is affecting Chad? It's not fair. I'm doing all these things for you, God. I'm trying as best as I can. And why do you keep doing these things to me? So often we go in the midst of trials. So often we go to God in prayer asking God to change the circumstance. Rather than allowing God to change us. I can sympathize with these disciples. I can empathize. If Chad were there in this day, I would be those. I would be just like the rest of that gang. Thinking, man, what, what's going to happen next? Where are we going to go? And every time there was a decision that needed to be made, he made it. I mean, we needed food. We followed him. He provided it. Someone got sick. They came to him. He healed them. He had all the words. He's the one that's been preaching all the sermons. He picked where we went when we left. Whatever money we were given was because of him. What are we going to do now? I've left everything. Where do I go? And then Jesus says, listen, it's to your advantage that I leave. Again, like I don't under, if I, think about this, how many of us wouldn't we like Jesus to be sitting, standing here and us listening to him? Like that'd be amazing, wouldn't it? I mean, you guys suffer through listening to me speak. It would be no suffering listening to him speak. I mean, we would get so much insight. And to think like after the service, like if we didn't understand something, we could just go up to him and say, hey, Jesus, can you just clarify this for me a little bit? I don't, I don't understand this. Well, what did you mean by that? Like that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Like we hit that rough patch in marriage, like just go to him for counseling. Like he'll, okay, write this out, Jesus. What are the three steps? Like, he, it would be amazing, wouldn't it? And so for them to say, listen, it's going to be better that I leave for you. Um, I think many of us have had um, opportunity in life where we've had a loved one that maybe has endured like a very difficult sickness, let's say cancer. And we've seen maybe that cancer eat that person up and suffer for it. And maybe there's been that time in your life where, where there's almost that hope, you know, especially if it's one that you know knows God, where you just think, wow, it, like they're a shell of who they were. There's so much pain and suffering. Like It'd be better for them. It'd be better for them to go on. I mean, have any of us been there before? We've seen that, right? It, it would just be no more suffering. It would be better for them. But we never sit in the hospital thinking, wow, it would be better for me if that person go. Well, maybe there might be a few times. <laughs> but typically that's not our thought, is it? Even those, those ones that we really, really love. Like in our hearts, in our minds, we, we don't think, well, it would be much better for that person to go on for me. No, it's always for them. 
And so Jesus makes a statement, listen, it's going to be so much better for you guys. It's going to be to your advantage for me to leave. Like that would not resonate with me because I'd want the literal figurative, I want the literal Jesus that I can touch and feel. The, the guy I can go laugh with and cry with. The guy I could talk to and get a, a literal response back from. That's what I would want. How in the world could it be better for them for him to go? And his answer is, is simple. He says that um, in verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you, the helper. One of the names given in Scripture for the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus, when he became man, took on certain limitations. One of those limitations in the flesh was he could only be in one place at one time. So if he were here today, preaching to us, he would be at Redemption Hill, and that'd be it. There'd be a crowd of 70 that would have the luxury of knowing and seeing Jesus. And what Jesus says is, listen, when I leave, the helper comes. The helper can be anywhere and everywhere at the same time. The helper will indwell in us. And so we see that going forward that we get two main works of the Holy Spirit, verses 8 through 11, we see the Holy Spirit's ministry to the world. Verse 8 says, And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of the world, of this world, is judged. And so the first, the first job, the first work, the first role of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world. Now, here's what I want you to do if you have your Bibles. Before that verse, the very end, towards the end of verse 7, Jesus says, but if I go, I will send him to you. Uh, I would circle or underline that word, you. It's an important Clarification that Jesus makes. Jesus says the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict who? The world, right? He's going to convict the world. Their sin, righteousness, and judgment. Those are the three main aspects. Convict the world of their sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's convicting the world. Again, terminology of of John is transition. So the world is not cosmos. It's not the literal world. It's not the trees. The grass, right? It's not that world. It's humanity, but it's more defined. It's not just general humanity. It's those who have rejected God, right? Those who do not believe in Him. Verse 7 tells us that the Holy Spirit's coming to you, those who believe. We need to understand, and this kind of piggybacks off of last week's lesson when we talked about persecution. We become the channel that the Holy Spirit uses to convict the world. The Holy Spirit may, it's possible the Holy Spirit may directly convict individuals. It's possible, but that's not what Jesus is teaching in this portion of Scripture. 
In the context of this situation, Jesus is telling the disciples, listen, I'm going, I'm leaving. The helper will come to you who believe. And when he comes, he's got to convict the world of their sin, their righteousness, and judgment. See, the logical understanding here then becomes the Holy Spirit uses us as believers to convict the world. But that would mean if the Holy Spirit's going to use us to convict them, then they must know that we believe in God. Right? The Holy Spirit's going to use us as believers as the channel. That's why we stay here after we accept Him. It's, it's, it's not like all of a sudden we say the prayer, we believe in God, and the snap of the fingers, we're in heaven. No, we stay here to be that channel that God uses. We stay here to be the mouthpiece. See, that's the, the struggle that we see in the end of 15 and going to 16. See, the world doesn't want the truth. They, they don't want to know those things. They don't want to know that they're wrong. What's interesting about this statement here when he talks about sin, it says concerning sin. Jesus doesn't make a long list of sins. Human Chad, when we start thinking about sins, like you start thinking about murder, rape, all these disgusting things. Like there's, there's no shortage. You watch the news, it can be the local news, national news. It, there's no shortage of atrocities that we can look at and think, wow, how horrible is that? Like when I start thinking of sins, my mind goes to the big, bad sins. It's not what Jesus lists here. You guys realize there's only one unpardonable sin. There's only one sin that God will not allow. There's only one sin that God will not forgive. We've heard the term the unpardonable sin. And that sin is rejecting him. That's it. Like he'll forgive everything else. But if you don't accept him, he cannot forgive it. And so God uses us as this channel to the unbelievers. Now, I don't believe it's for us to stand up in a crowd and start pointing out everyone's flaws. Okay, I don't think God wants us to... I shared with you guys, I think, last week about um, there's a big difference between enduring persecution and picking stupid fights. I don't know if I termed it that way. I probably was a little bit more eloquent. I had my notes on that one last week. Um, there's a difference. I, I remember in college seeing these group of guys. I have no idea what denomination or what group they were from. All I know is they would stand um, on street corners and just scream and yell at cars they'd go by. They'd have signs with verses and stuff on it. They would stand outside like bars and nightclubs and just scream bloody murder at these people as they were entering and exiting. Like That's not the love of God. Like I'm pretty sure that's not a tactic that Jesus would implore on his disciples, say, all right, guys, see that bar over there? Why don't you stand outside and just scream bloody murder at them? Like, I don't think that's what he would do. I, mean, I could be wrong, and I'll find out when I get to heaven. So there's a difference. Like, we have to be wise. 
Now, we have to stand up for truth. We talked about that last week. We stand up for truth. One of my great fears I shared with you last week is, is um, the country that I will one day hand off to my children. Uh, those of you who are grandparents have seen much more change in our country than I have seen. But I know in my, what's becoming a little bit more lengthy in years, like it's different. It's different. It's way, way, way different. And we talk about how that society that we're, we're on this slope and it's no longer a slow little trickle, but it's moving quicker and quicker and faster and faster in this open defiance against God and a willing acceptance of everything else is scary. It's, it's, it's terrifying to me. Like in our lifetime, there could be the possibility that we might not have the freedom to gather in a church openly. I mean, we, we may be in those days that we have to do the, like China does, the home churches. And I'm not saying government's evil. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is Satan's evil. And those who reject God are following him. And we need to stand for truth, but we need to do it in the way in which Christ would have us do it. Firmly, boldly, but lovingly. Not rubbing someone's nose in it. Not pointing at them. Laughing at them. I, I told you last week, um, I, one of the examples I used was marriage. Like We've seen a complete shift in the definition of marriage within probably the last five years. You know, the, 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 the definition that the United States adhered to for marriage was a biblical concept going all the way back to the Old Testament. One man, one woman, one life. And we've seen that change. Where it's no longer just one man, one woman, it's a lot of things. And where it goes from here is even scarier. Now, we can hold rallies and we can scream and shout but I will tell you this. Here's my heart. I'll bear it with you guys. My, my heart's desire is that we have homosexuals come to our church. Because they need to know Christ. They, they need to know him and experience his love. My heart's desire is we have drug addicts and alcoholics that turn to Redemption Hill, not for us, but for him. That's my heart. Like we can pick sins, and in our Christian world, we can think of a couple of real big sins and point at. But the reality is, sin is sin. It doesn't matter what it is. The only one he won't forgive is us rejecting him. So it's not right for us to reject others for other things that he won't. That's my heart. We need to love people. We, for us to be the channel that the Holy Spirit will use, it's going to be through love. Yes, maybe hard love at times. But it's going to be through love, not through hate. We can't use the same battle plan that the devil uses and expect a Christ-like outcome. 
So the first thing we see is the Holy Spirit will convict the world. And what I want us to fully understand and grasp is that more than likely, God is going to use us, use you as the channel to make a difference. And in order for him to use you as a channel, we need to adhere to the second part of this, the second work of the Holy Spirit found in verses 13 through 15. This is to the believer. And so it says here, Verse 13, it says, The Spirit of truth comes. He will guide you in all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All the Father that is mine, that all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. See, the Holy Spirit reveals things to the believer. It's a little bit different. Um, during the Old Testament and New Testament times, there would be direct revelations to people. Old Testament time was the prophets. right? And they used that, they would take that information, they would say stuff to the people, but then they would also record it. And that's where we get the Old Testament from. New Testament, we have prophets, and the apostles. But when John penned through the authority of the Holy Spirit, the final amen, the end of revelation, it changed. See, God gave us in His Word everything that we need to be obedient Every lesson that we need to learn, every word that we need to memorize, every rule we need to put in our lives, the cause to be obedient is here. It's in this book. And so what this promise, there's the promise of the apostles to the disciples, where Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to recall all these things that happened. Remember, when the apostles wrote the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew writes Matthew, Mark writes Mark, John writes John. Like these are years, Gospel of John. It's probably some 60 years after Jesus died. Okay, there's a gap. There's, things have changed. Like for me, Courtney can tell you, I've got a horrible memory. Like, I mean, you tell me something one day, more than likely, the next day it's gone let alone 60 years, I'll tell you, it ain't going to happen. Holy Spirit, though, brought these memories, brought these things back to the apostles, disciples, as they would read and write the scriptures. How it works in our lives today is this. As we read the scriptures, as we memorize the Bible, when things in our lives occur, it's the Holy Spirit that brings back those verses. I don't know about you. I don't know if have any of you guys ever had the experience. Maybe you memorized a verse as a child. One of the things I love that we do in children's church and we do Wednesday night stuff for the kids is we work with the children on, on them memorizing scripture. It's so critical. It's so important. Any of you guys ever had the experience where it could be 20 years after children's church. 
something happens. And all of a sudden that verse that you memorized as a six-year-old comes to your mind. Maybe you don't remember the whole word, but you just remember pieces of it. You're in the middle of when you needed that word from God, when you needed that, that push in the back, all of a sudden that verse pops into your head. Guys, it's not that you just have an amazing brain. It's not that you're that smart and have such a great recall. It's the Holy Spirit bringing back remembrance of things in his word to you. Die. See, what the Holy Spirit expects, what the Holy Spirit desires, is that as he communicates the word to us, it changes our lives. Like we should never, ever treat our Bibles like a textbook. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. I mean, they memorized huge portions of Scripture. They had all the laws memorized, and they they lived them, they breathed them. It was a textbook to them. It never traveled from their heads to their hearts. Like, don't get yourselves caught in a trap to where you're reading the book, the Bible for the sake of reading the Bible. Like you have to check it off in a box, like, okay, I did my devotions today. If the only reason you did it was to check it off, you're going to miss out on what God has for you. This is a love letter that he wrote to us for our benefit, for us to live, breathe. For us in those times when tragedy is about to hit, something for us to lean upon when we're confused and don't know how to answer something else to go to it's precious what the bible tells us is the holy spirit uses it in the things that we don't always understand we read scripture that's why we can read the same passage 10 times and get 10 different things out of it it's the holy spirit working and revealing It's how for some people, they may have glanced or read the Bible before they knew Christ and it meant nothing to them. And all of a sudden they become saved, they read it, and all of a sudden a light goes on and they understand it. It's the Holy Spirit. So this morning as we look at this passage in John chapter 16, understanding that persecution is going to occur in our lives. If we follow Jesus, if we believe in him, there will be some form of persecution It's a biblical promise. We endure that by staying connected to the vine, by having good, godly friends in our lives, and then relying on the Holy Spirit. Let us, Redemption Hill Church, be the channel the Holy Spirit uses to convict the world. That those who don't know him can walk in here and realize right off the bat, there's something different. There's something way different here. The only way it can be explained is through and by God. That yes, we're bold in the truth. And when we read it in scripture, we stand behind it. We talk about it. We believe it. We walk it. But we do it in love. And those who come in that don't understand it, we realize that maybe, just maybe, we can be the channel the Holy Spirit uses to convict them.
Going back to the illustration of the vine and the branches, it's not our job to change them. It's not our job to put the rules on them. All we try and do is bring the people to the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit introduce them to Christ. That's it. So may we be the channel. And the only way we're going to be the channel for the Holy Spirit to use is if we allow the Holy Spirit to communicate the word to us and change our lives. That's it. It's the only way, only way we can do it. The only way we can be the channel is if we have changed lives. So when those difficult times occur, when those challenges arise, we find some form, not of joy. If you go into James chapter 1, we know the passage that count all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Divers mean various. What James is saying is, we don't just go through trials and tribulations laughing. But we understand this. The reason that we're going through a trial and tribulation is that God is at work in our lives. We need to always, one of the temptations we have is when things go bad in our life, we think that God is judging us. There may be some of that, but oftentimes he's using that to refine you, to change you, to mold you. And we never, ever, ever know who's watching and the impact that your changed life might have on the world around you. Let's pray.